Hey there, my name is Christy Johnson Sadler, and I'm the Paranormal Hypnotist. I teach people how to connect with dimensional energies and explore hidden knowledge and memories to create positive change in their life. And I'm Alex, the not so important co host and half hearted audio engineer with an eager ear for the paranormal. Do you like listening to scary stories around the campfire? Or trading tales of intrigue around the water cooler? Maybe watching Leonard Nimoy on In Search Of or Robert Stack on Unsolved Mysteries. Have you ever stayed up till 4 a.m. chain-smoking cigarettes, pounding energy drinks and Cheetos, researching the underhanded imperialist satanic reptilian plot housed in the underground Masonic-funded temples hell-bent on suppressing the existence of Bigfoot while keeping the Ark of the Covenant at the bottom of Oak Island Money Pit in order to continue the status quo of the riot-inducing question of which way to face a toilet paper roll? (sighs) (sighs) Wow. All that from around a campfire, huh? I think you need some new hobbies. Don't tell me what I need. All I need is to get into Camp David and find out who has the key passes to the Dolce Bay. He'll be back. Catch us every week on the Supernatural Tendencies podcast, where we'll cover oddities, conspiracies, and things that go bump in the night. See you soon. Hello. Hello? Hello. Is this a new form of hello? It's not new. No? You've just been under a rock. Oh, no. It's it's because I'm old and more sophisticated than you. Under a rock, yeah. <laughs> I see your car potato chilling on our table. Uh-huh. What are you planning to do with that thing? Uh, Probably throw it at you one of these days. What? Why? What else would you do with a car potato? I don't know. Mash exactly. it? No. Bake it, ha, because that's what you do in cars, ha. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) I I imagine that's a drug reference, and I don't facilitate with those Of course, of course. My my apologies. I was making assumptions based on your age range. We're drink drunk dead, okay? We're not drink toke dead. Right. Drink toke dead. We don't do drinking and smoke. Smoke. What's a good word for high that would rhyme? <laughs> I have no idea. I'm not that hip. I can't I can't keep up with that. Toke choke dead. There you go. Figured it out. Yep, nailed it. Check us out once ever we move to Colorado. Colorado. Yeah, we'll be choke. We'll, we'll choke, do some rebranding. Dead. Right. So what are we drinking today? Oh, hey, we didn't introduce ourselves. We should probably do that. Everybody knows by now. Yeah, yeah, you guys know us. I'm Emily. He's Joel. We do this stuff. Wow, don't even let me introduce myself. What's your name? I'm Joel. This is Emily. Thanks. And you're listening to Drink. Drink. Drunk. Back the fuck off, man. I'm trying to do it. Wow. Why do you have a lunatic (laughs) smile on your face right now? (laughs) Jesus Christ. We're recording for once during daylight hours. (laughs) So and we I'm see awake. each other, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm less tired this Normally time. we just sit there in the dark with only the computer screen, the computer computer screen? screen illuminating our faces very precariously. Precariously? Yes. 
That is not the word that you're looking for here. It is the word I'm looking for. I'm pretty sure it's not. All right. Tell me why it's not. Are they wrestling on the floor again? Yeah. Goobers. Anyway, so what are you drinking? Area 51. Area 51. This is actually a really pretty drink. It was a hard decision between alien secretion, alien urine sample, and Area 51. All of which were neon green. Right. But we went with Area 51. This is going to make for a killer shit later on. That is just so delightful it's to be know. blue. No, it's not. We're not using blue curacao. We're using melon. Have you ever had a green popsicle before? Turns yeah, but that's from blue. food dye. This is not food dye. This is food dye. Whatever. Anyway, let me Those tell them how it's made. colors in there. Can you stop talking for a second? No, I need to make my point. <laughs> Oh Motherfucker, because you know you're wrong. Continue. Actually, okay. you know what? Go ahead. Look on the back of that ingredients list. I bet you it has green dye We'll do it later, and then bullshit. we'll prove that I'm right. Yeah. Anyway. So what you need to make an Area 51 is you need some uh, straight bourbon whiskey, some melon liqueur, freshly squeezed lime juice, or you could be lazy like us and just buy the real lime juice. Lemon. Did I say lime? Twice, yeah. Yeah, okay. Lemon is actually what it's supposed to be. And then you need simple syrup. So you take one ounce each of the bourbon and the melon liqueur. And we, the recipe calls for two ounces of the lemon juice, but we took it back to one because we tried making it with two and it was just too acidic. I think we need to do like 1.5 because this is a little sweet. I yeah. think it could use a bit more tartness. There. Yeah. So we've had it too much, too little. I think mm -hmm. our next one will be just about right. And then Catch one, us halfway through the episode after we take our elevator break. We'll have another one. So the recipe is one ounce each of the bourbon and melon liqueur, two ounces of the lemon juice, and one and a half ounces of simple syrup. And then you shake it uh, on ice and then pour into a highball glass. Not stirred. Shaken, not stirred. So that is our drink for the day. It's pretty good. It's it was definitely really acidic before. It definitely bit, and it made it harder to get if through. If I had a lot of those, it would definitely give me some problems. Oh, for sure. But it was good, though. It kind of tastes like a melon margarita. I enjoyed it. I don't think I could have drank another one that... That acidic? Yeah. Oh, I agree. I don't like... Like, I, I don't really like sour things, either, just because it's... Because you're a wuss? Ain't no wusses up in this household. Can't handle the sour? No. It's just it doesn't do good things to me. <laughs> okay. I, I'm picking up what you're putting down. I don't need a description, and neither you're do our listeners. You're smelling what I'm stepping in. I yes, I am definitely smelling what you're stepping in. For sure. I live with you. I smell everything that you step in. Anyway, let's move on to our spotlight for this week. So this week's episode spotlight is on P-Flag, which is... Um, it's you should an spell that out. It's literally the letter P and then flag. Okay. P flag. And you say P flag. So P flag. There you go. Mm -hmm. If you're confused, try it. Just sound it out. You'll get there. It's so it's um it's an LG it's an organization that supports LGBTQ plus people and their families and allies and all that. And it is uh, so most of what I'm going to tell you I pulled directly from their website. It's the first and largest organization for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people, their parents, and families, and allies. So it was established in 1973. 
and it's the first national LGBTQ plus organization to include transgender people in its mission statement. It didn't do that until 1998, which tells you how it's been a really long road for transgenders, that's for darn sure. And they're still struggling to get that kind of recognition, but they were the first national organization to recognize them, which is, you know, that says something. They state their mission as to build on a foundation of loving families united with LGBTQ people and allies who support one another and to educate ourselves and our communities to speak up as advocates until all hearts and minds respect, value, and affirm LGBTQ people. So it's really kind of, it's an, I think it's an organization that supports LGBTQ people as they're trying to come out. It uh, supports their families and understanding understanding and acceptance and really kind of helping with communication and building bridges that might otherwise not be there if families aren't that ready for it. They also work as advocates for uh, so many things. Like the list just really goes on. But it includes immigration, justice and reform, inclusive sexual education, marriage and workplace equality. And like I said, there's a whole lot more. I just really narrowed it down because I was scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. I'm like, I can't go through all this. It's a lot of stuff. So go check them out for sure. They work to make sure that LGBTQ people are valued within their community and that they feel value themselves. So they have um, branches all over the country to reach out to the LGBTQ people, the communities, and really give them a place to turn to when they're feeling like there's nobody left. And they offer all kinds of online and in-person resources for individuals, families, and communities through their website and through the local chapters. I really liked when I was looking at the website, I liked that they offer a lot of support, loads of support for individuals who are coming out and, and for the families to kind of, like we said, help foster that loving, understanding and compassionate relationship that's really needed in a time that can be really scary for a lot of people. When you know that this is who you are, but maybe somebody else isn't going to accept you for that. And it's even harder when you're the idea of your family not accepting you for that, I I appreciate from my point of view that there's somebody out there working really hard to make sure that that acceptance is there. Yeah. Uh, they also have an entire page that's dedicated to advocacy. So if you want to be an advocate, you can go online to get resources for all kinds of ways to become one. And that's doing things like signing petitions, uh, working at the local chapters, donating all all kinds of different stuff. If you want to donate, you can go to pflag.org, P-F-L-A-G.org, or you can get involved in one of your local chapters. And we highly encourage you to go check out the website, engage with them on social media. They have an Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at pflag. So go check them out. Get out there, show some love, show some support for LGBTQ community. It is Pride Month. It should be every month that we're out there doing this, but especially this month, remember that this is to celebrate them. Go out and support. So that was our spotlight for this episode. A noteworthy organization for sure. So do you want to tell our listeners what we did this week? (sighs) What did we do this week? No. What did we do? Oh, 
What's on our board? An interview with Supernatural Tendencies. Yeah, that was fun with Alex and Christy over at Supernatural Tendencies. It was the first time we had ever done anything like that. And then first time they did too, right? No, they've done it before. I think we were their second guests to come on. They've had a podcast for almost a year. And they're pretty well established. They're a lot of fun. I've talked about them on the show before, but they're new to doing interviews. And they interviewed us. That was fun. It was fun. It's cool. They're hoot, aren't they? Their yeah. dynamic is ridiculous. Some mother son team, and boy, does she pick, she lays in him pretty good. <laughs> he just I certainly enjoyed the uh, pre live video uh-huh. commentaries going on. <laughs> the there. stuff behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. She's just always on, and Alex is ready for it. He's throwing it right back at her. That's <laughs> a good family. They're a lot of fun, but uh, I think we should. Alex should be sending me some audio soon, and I'm hoping that we can edit that and upload it as a bonus episode for you guys to hear so you can hear the interview. It was a lot of fun. Go out and support Supernatural Tendencies, too, because they're a really cool podcast. They're definitely dorky and very funny. They've shown us love, for sure. Oh, for sure. Dorky's the best way to go if you're going for a podcast. You need something. A podcast. You heard with purred. That's totally if, oh my God, if Purd happily had a podcast, he would have a Purdcast. You heard of a Purd? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nerd. Yeah. So I had some, uh, just a, a brief couple of things to tell you about. Just a brief. That's what you say now. I know. Well, okay, so we don't have the kids. We didn't have them yesterday or today, so I've been binging on my podcast. Hallelujah. Right? <clears throat> and I found a new one that I really like. It's called Mirths and Monsters. It's this Scottish guy, and he's hysterical. It's short little episodes. Go check them out. I haven't gotten a whole, I haven't gotten to listen to a whole bunch of them yet, but they're really, really funny, and they're nice short little episodes about um, kind of myths and legends from all over the world, but he makes them ridiculous, and it's hysterical. And then, of course, my favorite show, and that's why we drink, which I binge like crazy, right? Mm-hmm. You would think when I say I binge it like crazy that I would be almost caught up, considering I started listening to that show back in like January, February. Before then, it was it was around First that time. Semester. <clears throat> but I, I'm really far behind. I just literally just yes yesterday listened to their one year anniversary episode. Mm-hmm. And guess what they covered in their one-year anniversary episode? Mm. UFOs. Reincarnation. Oh. And guess guess which stories they covered? Huh. The stories that we did. Really? Literally the exact same story. So in their one-year anniversary, M, who usually does the paranormal, and Christine, who usually does the true crime, they switched for that episode. Uh-huh. So Christine was covering the paranormal. I got to say that I think that our... We covered the stories better than Christine because she covered more of the past life stories, but she definitely hit on our two stories. <laughs> Those were like the first two that she touched on. Oh, yeah. I'm like, damn it. <laughs> but we did a better job. But to be fair, she covered more and she's a true crime person. She's not really into the paranormal, so hmm. I'll, I'll give it to her. <laughs> You're not on our shit list yet. She tweeted me. I was so excited today. She tweeted you or liked your tweet? She liked my tweet and then responded. 
Oh. Yeah. Learning. I was like, yay, fangirling <laughs> yeah, over right? here. <laughs> That's my favorite yeah, show. Yeah, blushing too. <laughs> I know. I was stupid excited. It's one of those dumb moments. Yeah. I've been tweeting at them for like six months now, and I got my first response. <laughs> I was like, yes, <laughs> she knows I exist. <laughs> dumb i know but whatever uh-huh. it's like when a celebrity like sees their favorite celebrity you know uh-huh i think it's hilarious not that we're celebrities no i think it's funny not by <laughs> any <still>. means <laughs> but we are in our own lives right yeah holy shit what are they doing down there playing with screws oh, great so this week's episode comes out on father's day so for this week's fun facts i wanted to do father's day facts so I have some good ones for you here. Let's start with some water. I kind of got this feeling that something's going to come up the stairs behind me. The cats? No, like something. It's probably. Don't, dude, because I'm not. I'm quitting right now if you say anything. <laughs> you think I'm joking. I'm closing this door. <laughs> You're going to shut a cat down there. Well, they can come a-knocking. Okay. So Father's Day packs for you. Sonora Dodd from Spokane, Washington, first suggested a Father's Day in 1909 after listening to a Mother's Day sermon. She hoped to establish a day similar to honor her father, William Smart. Although the celebration has likely been around for um, hundreds, possibly thousands of years, it definitely goes way back, but that was the first time it really got established in the U.S. or established as an official holiday, I guess. The world's oldest Father's Day card is a 4,000-year-old Babylonian tablet that a young boy named Elmasu, because that's an awesome name. I don't know. Elmasu. Do you think that's what evolved into Elmer? Ew. No, I hope not. Anyway, he carved uh, he carved into it and uh, to wish his father a long life and good health. Oh, how cute. <laughs> I wonder how they now, like... Do you think that little kids' handwriting was as bad back then as it is now? Oh, for sure. If you're carving into a tablet, far better dexterity in hand-eye coordination. Like, how do you carve that shit with such little kid handwriting? It had to be right. awful. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what that. How many times like. do you think he smacked his thumb with a yeah. rock? <laughs> they probably actually used like soft clay, and that's how they usually used it. But anyway, Halsey Taylor invented the drinking fountain in 1912. I wrote, wrote Foundation, that ain't right, Fountain, the drinking fountain, in 1912 as a tribute to his dad because his father had died of typhoid fever from drinking from contaminated water from the public water supply. Mm-hmm. So we have poor old dead dad to thank for drinking fountains. Here's, there's your Father's Day gift. What does that have? What? He died from a public water fountain. He a died from drinking. hole, okay, whatever, but still... Why contaminated you... water but i don't i think it's um it's so a sweet it, idea but like you know it's not like the drinking fountain in school where you press the button it's those ones that come with the jugs so it's special clean water those kinds of you stand around the drinking fountain at work isn't that what it is when was this 1912 they would have been glass but it was probably clean bottled water with the ones that you put the cup underneath and you and fill it up. Did they even have cups in 1912. Um, not efficient ones, but they had them. They were like they were made out of baskets. stone, of course. Stone or right. wood were the only two options right. that they had in 1912. Right. 
And wood wouldn't be good. No. They it's probably lined right it with wood. like whale blubber or something. I imagine that they used lead cups because that seems like a reasonable option. For sure. And it's actually better if you let the water kind of sit and, you know, get, the le- age yeah. it a little bit. For Just sure. Just like a nice fine wine. Probably gets that metallic taste. That's when you know it's really good. Oh, yeah. The world's oldest father is believed to be Ramajit Raghav from India. He was 96 years old when his 52-year-old wife gave birth to a baby boy in 2010. And he was he was single until he was in his 80s. Is that like the modern-day sugar daddy? I feel like that's the modern-day version of... Well, no, I guess it wouldn't be a modern-day version. It's just like the Indian version of 40-year-old virgin. He was single so, until he was 80, so it would be 80-year-old year old virgin. virgin. time, too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, shit, I'd be slapping poon when I'm 80. Yeah, but you're not going to want a baby when you're 96 years old. I might. I mean, they probably sleep about the same amount of time. Right. Lines up perfectly. (laughs) They probably both have to get fed their pureed green peas. She's 52, man. No, I would not. Not at 50. No. Mm -mm. But whatever. To each their own. It's not my life. The father with the most children is most likely Ishmael Ibn Sharif who was a sultan that fathered 888 children with, gangster. Hun- with hundreds of wives and concubines in the late 17th century. That's gangster. Dude, Why couldn't I grow up in the 17th century? Basically, this whole planet has to be related to him at this point. No. Or a good shit. chunk of the planet. 900 kids. millions of people on this planet. Famines and shit. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, so like 700 of them died. We're good. Charlemagne, the 8th century king of the Franks, was father to only 18 kids. Well, at least 18 kids. And supposedly most of modern Europeans can, are, they're able to claim that he was an ancestor of theirs. Because it was so long ago, 8th century, that by now his genes have apparently sped, spread through all of Europe. I fucks with it. That'd be a weird thing to know that someday your progeny would go out and literally be the world. And it's not just going to rule the world, it's going to be the world. Maybe that was his intention. And I think the kings just got it. They were like, whatever, let's go. They got it when they could. And then this is my last fun little fact for you, because this is just, sounds like every dad's dream on Father's Day. Makes It might make you want to move to Germany. Dads in Germany get to celebrate their day by spending all of it drinking in beer gardens. Oh, yeah. That's how they celebrate Father's Day in Germany. Right, just fuck off with the kids. Let me get drunk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how you got to goddamn spend Father's Day. I got to kick out Same of that. Same with Mother's Day. Like, you know, give mama flowers in the morning, whatever, but then just go let her do her own fucking thing. Yep. <laughs> you want to appreciate your mom, fuck off. As every dad in America is like, can we please celebrate like the Germans? Uh-huh. Let's make this a national thing. Open the one thing they everywhere. do right. <laughs> Germans do plenty of things right. They've done a few major things wrong, but they do lots of stuff right. They make very nice cars, but they aren't. Okay. German engineering is fantastic, right? But it's also ridiculously stupid. (laughs) You're going to go off on a tangent about engineering now? I was going to, but I, I will stop. The people who know German cars know. Is there somebody out there like, yep. Yeah, even people who don't know cars know. 
drive a Volkswagen and you're like, wow, this is a really nice car until you have to get it serviced. And you're like, why am I spending $3,000 in labor costs? Oh, because they put the fucking oil plug under 13 other things that you got to take off. And maybe that's because Germans just like things to be really rough. They like it rough all around. But that's I belong in Germany. Shall we get on to our stories today then? Yeah, finally. Uh, 40 years later. What the fuck ever? I have a long one for you today, but I'm Uh, so... It's a good one. I'm so excited uh, about it. Okay, so... Do tell, darling. We had originally had something else planned for this week, but we pushed it back because I had so much fun doing the UFOs last week that I wanted to cover abductions this week. She's doing a maniacal My little clap. clap. <laughs> All right. So abductions. This week, I am going to cover one I'd never heard of before until I started doing some research. It's called the Gundaya McKay abduction. It's from Australia. I like to go to Australia. Gundaya? Gundaya. Gundaya. It still doesn't sound like an Australian name. It's a place. Oh. It's not a name. Those are two places. It's a hyphenated thing. Gundaya hyphen McKay. Sounds like a name, but not an Australian name. It's Gundaya. I can't do it. Nope. That, that was that was such a fail. <laughs> Gundaya. <laughs> it's a little more Indian than anything. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, back it up. That didn't happen. Uh, just give him a good old shrimp on the bobby. Okay. So most of what I uh, what most of what I researched came from two websites, abovetopsecret.com and alienufosightings.com because those both sound highly reliable, but it was based on actual transcripts of the events. Both websites based their information on transcripts and interviews, so it's not just like somebody typing away. But I did I did pull information from other websites, those were just the two that I really relied on heavily. So late in the evening of October 4th, 2001, Keith Rylands, 39, his wife Amy, 22, because he liked them young, and their business partner Petra Heller, who was 35, they were chilling in, they kept calling it a caravan, but I think it's kind of like, you know, those temporary buildings that you set up when you're doing construction at a construction site? Like what do you think is an old rail car? Shut up. Something like that, Right. They kept calling it a caravan. I'm going to call it like RV because that's what makes the most sense to me. It's a temporary housing thing. Okay. So they're chilling in their RV thing in Australia. And it was parked on the land that they were developing as a winery in Gundaya. The winery was going to be called Whispering Winds. Sounds original. Right? That's what I thought too. Like everybody goes with that name. So around... 9 p.m., Keith heads off to bedroom, and Petra, the friend-slash-business partner, um, she goes back to her bedroom shortly after, so they're going off to bed. Amy decided to stay in the living room on the couch and watch TV, and that's where she fell asleep. And this is cooperated by everyone that was involved, right? All three of them. Around 11.15, Petra woke up, and she went into the living room. There were a lot of storms that night, so there was probably a bunch of noise. She gets up, she goes into the living room where Amy should have been and when she walks in she sees a beam of light that's streaming into the room through the window and it was a beam of light that appeared to abruptly end so it's called a solid light or solid state light Mm -hmm. it's it almost looks like it's hard light weird saber yeah like that 
floating in the light, lying prone like she was sleeping, was Amy. And she's surrounded by a bunch of stuff that had previously been on the coffee table that was next to Amy when she fell asleep. So she's floating in the air in the middle of all this light with a bunch of shit around her. And Petra watched as Amy was carried through the window head first. And as she's as Petra's looking out the window, she sees that the light is emanating from a disc-shaped flying craft that's hovering just above the ground near the back of the caravan house RV thing. And when when she saw this, she fainted. Which It's always a good thing. Yeah. It's you know, fainting goat syndrome. It happens. Right. I would probably <laughs> how do you respond to something like that? Not faint. Well, I mean, you don't really know until you experience it. It's not like you can train your body not to faint when you see alien abductions. You probably could. Just turn, teach yourself to act cool and <laughs> high intensity situations. Is that how you got to where you are? You taught yourself to act so cool. Yeah. And explain so much. I chill. Mm-hmm. Just a chill dude. When Petra woke up, she didn't believe she'd been out for that long. But she immediately started just screaming and screaming and screaming, panicking, because that's apparently how she handles things. She faints and then she screams. And of course, this wakes up Keith, and he comes bolting in to see what's wrong. When he entered the room, he found Petra, who was hysterical, and all the stuff from the coffee table was strewn all over the floor. And when he looked at the window, there's this big, long slice, vertical slice, in the middle of the screen, and then it's also torn at the bottom of the frame which is a little odd. So because Petra's freaking out and screaming and crying and he can't really get any sense out of her, he just kind of ignores her for the moment and goes outside to look for Amy, but he can't find her. And naturally he starts to freak out because Amy's freaking out, but he tries to, he kind of collects himself, tries to calm down, goes back into Petra to try and figure out what happened. And she tells him everything, which of course he doesn't believe at first, would you? Yes. 100% hands down, you would absolutely believe that I was taken. Mm-hmm. I suppose it would make sense that I was taken through a window by a beam of light. I'm a, I'm a weird one. Right, they want to study the fuck out of you. If it was anybody, it was going to be me. Yep. Petra kept insisting, though, that that this is what happened, so he runs back outside again to try and find Amy, thinking that there just has to be some kind of logical explanation to what happened. But unable to find her... And finally starting to believe Petra because she's just over and over like, this is what happened. This is what happened. You need to listen. You need to believe me. He calls the police. Uh, He calls them at about 1140 to report that his wife was missing and that they couldn't find her anywhere. But it took the police nearly an hour and a half to arrive, which is, you know, great. Typical police shit. Yeah, right. Hey, there's an emergency. Somebody just went missing. It happened just now. Hour and a half later. What's up, guys? All right, so tell me what happened. An hour and a half later, they finally get your name and address written down. If Dr. Phil had a badge, and how did that make you feel? All right. Okay, so it takes them an hour and a half to arrive. And the two officers that arrived, uh, it was Senior Constable Marangna? Marangna. That's what we're going with. From Tiara, which was like the local-ish area officer and then an officer from Mar- Maryborough. So it was officers from two different districts were already involved. I don't know why. Maybe it's because maybe Gundaya kind of falls in between two jurisdictions. I don't know why you would have cops from two different jurisdictions show up, but that's what happened. It's all in the transcripts. It's legit. 
So the cops get there, and of course they think that they're going to be arriving at a scene of foul play, like murder or something. But Keith and Petra kept insisting that Amy had been abducted by a spaceship. Which would be an awful cover story for a murder, by the way. Like, how do you, how on earth do you think anybody's going to believe you if you murder somebody and you're like, no, they were abducted by aliens? Right. Well, maybe you'd at least, like, if you were sure or guilty of yourself, right? Just say that you were abducted by aliens and you have a case saying that you are a lunatic and you'll just get sent to the loony bin instead of jail. Yeah, but I think kind of the idea is to just stay out of jail altogether. Why would they call the police to report her missing and then come up with some ridiculous explanation like that? Yeah. Right? I don't know. That's just my take on it. It wouldn't be a great excuse for murder. So it was weird. It's weird as a cop. It's just too weird. So they call in Sergeant John Bosniak, who's also of Tiaro, of the Tiaro Police Department. They woke him up and asked him to join the investigation. And he's like the head honcho of that police department. So obviously, these officers thought that they needed some serious backup. Sorry, we're dealing with two people who are screaming and yelling that aliens abducted somebody. Mm-hmm. How do we figure out where this person went? So the three officers are on the property and they're conducting an investigation and Keith and Petra keep freaking out like the whole time she was abducted, she was abducted. Now, mind you, Keith didn't even see the damn thing. It was Petra, right? But he's freaking out, of course. Yeah, it's his wife. She's missing, but still. The officers couldn't find any sign of Amy anywhere. Like, they looked all over the property, but they did find a few unusual pieces of evidence. They found that a bush that was to the left of the window, so if you're outside looking at the window, it's to the left of the window, your left, um, that Amy had floated through, there was evidence of heat damage on its right side, so right up against the window on that bush, but not on the other bush that was on the other side of it. So it was some unusual heat damage, right? Mm-hmm. They took some tests or some samples for tests at a later time. And then as police were conducting their investigation, Keith got a phone call from a woman in McKay, which is almost 800 kilometers away. It, so I literally Google mapped this because I don't speak kilometers and I'm like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> it's about, I Google mapped, it's eight and a half hour drive from Tiaro. So uh, eight and a half hours from where they are. Mm-hmm. But it's only been about an hour and a half, two hours since Amy went missing, right? They get a call from this woman, and she says that she had been at a local gas station in McKay where she'd found another woman who was dehydrated and in distress. She says that she took the dehydrated woman to the local hospital to get checked out, and she was calling Keith because the woman that she had taken to the hospital had identified herself as Amy Rylance. So the caller wanted to let Keith know that Amy was okay. And Keith, hearing this, of course, is kind of, you know, like, what the fuck? And he hands the phone call over to Senior Constable Marangia, whatever his name is, who also spoke to the woman. And at that point, that's when the McKay police were also pulled into the investigation. So that makes three police departments that were involved in Amy's disappearance and and kind of the search to understand what had happened. Mm -hmm. Two hours she'd been missing and somehow she made it eight and a half hours away. A little weird. Right? Maybe she hopped onto a cheetah's back or something. Maybe she's been working on that teleporter we've been talking about. Maybe. She just knew. Damn it, Amy. Yeah. So Amy ended up making a statement to the police about what had happened. And this was notarized. 
So it's like it's a sworn affidavit, essentially, um, making evidence that could be taken to court if it was found out that she was lying. And the statement was made after she was discharged from the hospital. And I think that's where that's where most of what I'm about to talk about comes from is from her statement to the police. So in the, she said that the last thing that she remembered from Gandaya was lying on the couch watching TV, which kind of matches what Keith and Petra said, right? She doesn't remember anything about what Petra described, so she doesn't remember getting in the beam of light or going out the window, nothing about the actual abduction itself. But she does remember what happens after that. She said that she remembered waking up alone in this rectangular room that had light that was emanating from the walls and ceiling, and she was lying on a bench in the middle of it. And I was looking into this, and I guess that's a pretty common thing to say that light is emanating from, it's almost like the room just has light itself. There aren't any actual light bulbs. It's just the room creates its own light kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Seems that people experience it quite a bit. So she wakes up in this weird place, doesn't know where she is, and immediately starts to freak out and starts yelling. And she hears a male voice telling her to stay calm and she won't be harmed and everything is going to be okay. Which... You know, I don't know about you, but if I'm laying on a table in some room that I've never been around and I hear some stranger's voice, I'm probably not going to listen to what he's saying. If he's saying stay calm, I'm going to be like, fuck you, bitch. I'm getting the fuck out of here. Yeah. Personally, that would be my take on that situation. I don't know that I could keep calm. You'd probably faint. I might faint. as a fainter. As a fainter. And then just screaming incoherently when I wake up like Petra. Right. Yeah. I'm going to change my name. It might fit. To Petra? Petra. Petra Fied. Ha! 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 Oh, Because no. <laughs> that's what she was. Uh. Ha! Anyway, then uh, the next thing that happens is a six-foot-tall figure walks into the room. I don't know. How do you tell six feet? If you're lying on your back, I would not be able to tell who's six feet tall. Would you be able to? I wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah, you think so? I'm terrible at that. You're not good with directions or dimensions or No, anything. I'm great with directions. I'm terrible yeah, with, okay. with height because everybody's taller than me. So it's just like, I don't know, somebody's tall. <laughs> They're taller than me. Uh, so the guy was described as slender, but he had perfectly normal proportions. So he had like human proportions. Mm-hmm. But he was completely covered from head to toe in this bodysuit. And then it had a kind of like a black mask thing with holes for the eyes, nose, and mouth, which to me sounded like a really weird BDSM outfit. Fuck yeah, bud. It doesn't sound like an alien outfit. It sounds like something from like a weird European German porn or something. <laughs> I'd be game. I bet you would. Get you one of those ball gags. Yeah. Speaking of balls, that's what Emmett's playing with right now. Mm-hmm. So she said that he kept reassuring her that it was going to be okay and that she had to stay calm. And um, she said that as all this is going on, she felt like she'd been there for quite a while. Not like it was something that had just, like she fell asleep and then woke up. She felt like she'd been asleep for quite some time. And then the guy, this being, told her that they were going to return her somewhere close to where she was taken from, but they couldn't take her back to the exact spot because the lights were wrong at the property and it wasn't safe. 
So I don't know if maybe this was the police or maybe just because Keith and Petra were awake. Why would the lights be wrong? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe there's too much, too many people are awake, too many witnesses. Something's wrong there, right? Bad mojo for the aliens. Mm-hmm. Bad juju. Juju. So as he's telling her this, she starts to fall back asleep, which is what you're doing right now. And possibly our listeners, apparently. Would you say I fell asleep for a while there? You're a butthead. Don't do that. Continue. When she woke up, she was on the ground, surrounded by trees, and she could smell the ocean. So she gets up and she's all disoriented and she starts stumbling through the bush. She's through the outback. The bush. You just gotta try it. You gotta stop. <laughs> try to stop. Why? Outback bush. It's called the bush. Uh-huh. That's what it's called. I'm not making it up, and I'm not trying an Australian accent because I suck at you accents. Did. I know. Kind of did right there. No, I didn't. Even if, Whatever. Even if you didn't mean to, you did. <laughs> so she's stumbling her way through the bush, and uh, she's trying to find her way out of the trees, basically, until she eventually finds a road. And that's when she saw a gas station, and she walked to it. It was a BP petrol station. <laughs> so Australian <laughs> petrol. Petra found the petrol station? No, oh, Amy. Isn't. Yes, okay. I just got Petra stuck in my I mind. know, right? Was it because she was petrified? No. No? no. <laughs> You're just not digging my jokes tonight. Not tonight. <laughs> when she entered it, the attendant saw that she, did, she just did not look good. She's all dirty and she's covered in mud. So they offer her some water and then they start to ask her questions. And they're asking her who she is, where she's from, but she couldn't answer any of them. She couldn't recall right at that time so unsurprisingly they ask her whether she's been drinking or doing any drugs and she's like no i don't i don't know what happened i'm just i woke up here and she's scared looking for help she told them that she was really sore and really tired and she just kind of felt drained and then she asked one of the women there to take her to the hospital so the woman and her friend did and that's the woman that ended up calling I'm guessing that somewhere between the gas station and the hospital, Amy must have remembered who she was because otherwise this woman couldn't have called Keith. Right, it wouldn't have known who to call. But eventually, Amy ended up calling Keith from the hospital, and that's where she ended up also speaking with him and two of the officers. After she was discharged, she was taken to the local station in McKay, and that's where she gave her full statement. And um, during this, she said that nothing like this has ever happened to her before, but that she did say that she had seen UFOs before when she was a kid. Which I don't, I feel like that that's not that unusual. I feel like more people have seen something that they would classify as, I don't know what this is. It might be a UFO. It's an, a right, UFO. I don't I'm know. Because I'm a what, kid. Yeah. Right? So. They needed to keep her around for a while. So the police arranged a, a hotel room for Amy. And then she stayed there while she waited for Keith and Petra to come get her. When Keith and Petra arrived, the three of them all decided to go sit down around a campfire. And they threw some magic dust on it. And then they submitted their stories for the approval of the Midnight Society. Magic dust. You don't get my reference, do you? I'm too old. You've been living under a rock. No. It's, (laughs) are you afraid of the dark? We submit this for the approval of the Midnight Society. How do you not get that? It's probably a stupid movie. <sighs> no, it was not a stupid movie. It was a phenomenal TV show on Nickelodeon in the 90s. What is wrong with you? It was great. 
Mm-hmm. I loved that show. I was so proud of that joke, and you don't get it. <laughs> Somebody else will get it, I'm sure. Because <laughs> they all sat down and they shared their stories with each other, and I was like, it's the Midnight Society. <laughs> I don't get any... Fucking dying. <laughs> even shows that we just watched, I don't get references. I don't pay attention to stuff like You're that. You're so boring. Oh, my gosh. Quiz me on anything else, and I'll... Boom, got it. TV shows, movies, could care less. So, basically, what they did is they just got each other all caught up on what they'd each experienced. Oh, from, like, the midnight thing. Shut up. You think you're being smart With now. the magic dust, they threw... I got it. <laughs> I got ass. it. <laughs> You're a dick. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. You alright there, girl? No. <laughs> oh, it's too hot in here. I can't uh-huh. handle it. Hurry up then. <laughs> okay. So they all got each other caught up, right? While they're doing this, uh, they ended up taking a whole bunch of notes and pictures, and the pictures appeared to show, like, a triangular kind of arrangement of marks on her inner right thigh, and then there were marks on each of her heel. And they also documented that her hair seemed to have grown more quickly than it should, like, all over her body. She had dyed her hair earlier that week, but it appeared to have grown out quite a bit, like, you could see way more of her natural color than you should have. And her body hair was longer than it would be for the amount of time she'd been missing. She stated that she was a kind of the a shave a day kind of woman. She shaved everything every day, but it was way longer than it should have been. Do you think women who shave every day get a button? That's a shave a day type of woman. I don't know that that's a button that too many women would wear around. I think once they lift their underarm, like they lift their arms and you can see them, you, you know that they're a shave a day kind of or woman. Maybe even just like a Facebook banner type thing. Maybe you should start the group. You thought of it. I don't shave every day. I know you don't, but you're the one who thinks there should be like buttons and stuff. I think there should be. I think this is something that we could market. Do we trademark it or do we copyright it? Copyright and trademark. Well, there we'll we go. Into an LLC. You can't steal it. It's our idea. Shave right. a day. Patent pending. Patent pending. This is an intellectual property. <laughs> so this is about the time that it looks like Keith kind of takes over and starts pulling all the strings and it starts to get, if it was weird before, it starts to get really weird now. So on the afternoon of October 5th, 2001, so this is the day after the abduction, within the same 24 hours, he contacted the Australian UFO Research Network office which he had seen mentioned in a magazine about ufos which he had apparently gone out and bought that day i don't know where you find magazines about ufos just chilling anywhere unless australia has a whole bunch of more magazines like that like 2001 maybe tabloid shit maybe so he sees a number and he calls him he and amy spoke with diane harrison for quite a while and they detailed everything that had happened but she felt that due to the solid light aspect of the account, which was, you know, when the abduction part, she needed to bring on someone that was more experienced with that particular phenomena. So she brings on Bill Chalker, who ends up being the person that does a whole does all the interviewing with them and records their conversations. During the call, Bill also during the call that Bill had with them, Bill also only spoke with Keith and Amy. They were never able to get a hold of Petra. 
don't know why. They always said that Petra was asleep or unavailable during both calls, which was a little bit weird. Mm. Like, you would figure she's the person who saw Amy being abducted. Don't you kind of... You would make herself available? Yeah, or... But, like I said, it looked like Keith was pulling all the strings. That's the impression that Bill and Diane got, that it was... Keith did all the talking. He wanted to control the situation. So when Bill spoke with Keith, Keith had expressed his desire to bring all of this to the media's attention, which Bill advised against, but apparently Keith felt it was the only way to control the story when it broke, and he wanted to break it on his terms. That doesn't Even though he was like the last one at the party. Right, he, like he didn't see or experience any of this. He's just it's the just person that wife. was... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's the oldest of the group. Amy's 22, he's 39, so maybe there's like... I'm experienced and mature enough. I know how to handle this kind of thing. Maybe. Or maybe he's just a controlling dick bag. I don't know. Keith, if you're not a controlling dick bag, I'm sorry. If you are, fuck you. Facts. So Keith also expressed the belief that Bill and Diane shouldn't need any of the actual evidence because Keith believed them. Keith Keith believed both Petra and Amy. He's like, you don't need to see the pictures of the hair or the markings, and you don't need to talk with them directly. You can just speak with me because I know everything. And Bill and Diane are like, um, I don't know about this something one. Something about this is weird. So they felt it was definitely, like, they were wary of it. They thought there was something weird going on, but they also thought that it warranted their attention. So Diane and Bill agreed to meet the trio at the hotel in McKay, um, but they got permission to make an overnight stop at the Rylance's property in Gundaya to conduct their own investigation there first. So they would go to Gundaya and then go to meet them at the hotel, right? Okay. So when they get when when they get when they arrived in Gundaya, it was a little bit after 10 p.m. on October 9th. So this is like five days after the incident. They noticed that the Rylance's dog, which was still there, a neighbor was taking care of the dog for them, would often jump up at the broken window. So they thought that this might offer a possible explanation for why it was damaged, for the damaged screen. Mm -hmm. That makes, I mean, it makes sense. If the dog can reach it, I don't know how big that dog was or how high that window was. Right. Lots of factors to take into consideration. Yeah, it's, it's worth considering, right? And then they would go on to notice that they were... There were other plants on the property that exhibited heat damage, and they were kind of... Way to go, Otto. <laughs> they were kind of all over the place. They were, it was weird. It was like patchy little heat-damaged plants. So they spoke to a gardener, and the gardener said it just wasn't uncommon in the area, that mm-hmm. there would be certain plants in areas that would be heat-damaged, and others wouldn't. So another possible explanation for one might be heat-damaged on one side. Yeah. Uh, so then Diane and Bill made the drive to McKay to go collect the witness statements at the gas station, and they also got security camera footage that would have been available. I couldn't find anywhere what they concluded about that part of their investigation, so I don't know I don't know how many witnesses they spoke to from the gas station. Obviously, there was somebody else involved because somebody that wasn't Amy called Keith and spoke with police. And right over to the hospital. Right. But I don't know what Bill and Diane found out about that part of the investigation. I couldn't find it anywhere, which I thought was a little bit weird. Yeah. If it a crucial part. Right. If it didn't the hold first up. Ones to speak to her after her abduction. 
if it didn't hold up, like if you didn't see her on video coming in looking all dirty, if you didn't have witnesses, like wouldn't you want to talk about that? If you're trying to say that this looks like a hoax, wouldn't you want to discuss that, hey, there wasn't any actual evidence here? Or the evidence contradicts what she's saying, Mm -hmm. but they don't. It's just this unknown, which I thought was weird. So after that, they go on to meet with um, Amy, Keith, and Petra at the motel, which was the third motel that they were in. But by this point, when they when the when Bill and Diane got there, the three had already checked out. They were gone. They'd left that morning. Like meh, never mind. Yeah, they they knew that Bill and Diane were coming, but they left that morning, which is weird, right? So Bill and Diane, they call Keith and. A bunch of times, and then leave several messages, and he doesn't call them back for till the next day. And when he did, he claimed that they had a run-in with men in black that had forced them to move. Now, the men in black description that they give is just so... I, I don't get... He claimed that they'd been pursued in their vehicle by a heavy brown truck or van. The reports varied on whether it was a truck or a van, but it was heavy, like a heavy brown four-wheeled vehicle. How often do men in black drive brown vans around? I guess we'd never know, would we? Yeah, maybe maybe it's an Australian thing. Maybe they're men in brown, not men in black. Maybe. I don't know. But he said, he claimed that they had to... Maybe it's really just men in black and brown. But they don't want you to hear that second part because then it gives away the the element of surprise. Maybe you're right. That's how they sneak up on us because we don't... Maybe that was that guy in the, the last episode... Down in Texas that was dressed for the weather. He was probably in brown. Probably. Fucking men in with brown. Like a black undershirt. Sneaky bastards. So men in black in brown. See, we use our noggins yep, you, here at Drink You Trump know Dead. things. Uh-huh. So he said that they had, they'd had to leave the area to lose the vehicle. Which they're kind of like, mm, okay. And then the investigators only heard for him, from him one more time after that and i don't know what if it was just like a regular phone call but the three witnesses disappeared so keith amy and petra disappeared nobody knows where they went nobody's heard from them since then and it's rumored that they fled to england but we really don't know they just disappeared so i did a little bit of digging to kind of like i don't know so I was digging around into this story, but you know me. I, I have like 20 pages open on my laptop when I'm trying mm-hmm. to figure this shit out. And there is the belief that it might possibly be related to a Scientology mission called Mission Earth. Petra had apparently been keeping like a notebook or a journal or something that had specific words that are linked to Scientology, like Thetan and clearing, which is clearing really a Scientology word? I don't know. I don't know anything about Scientology. Maybe in context. Maybe. I don't really know anything that's specifically related to Scientology because I'm not rich and ridiculous. I'm just poor and ridiculous. Well, maybe Scientology is the way to get rich. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but the Rylance's property, another piece of evidence that it might be linked to Scientology somehow was uh, the Rylance's property was also named Whispering Winds, which was the same name as the estate that L. Ron Hubbard had spent his final years in in the U.S. But I don't, I think this is pretty thin evidence. It's something that people are arguing for. They're like, oh, it's clearly Scientology, but 
Maybe How many places one. have you heard of called Whispering Winds? I think we had right, one we here in Erie. Like it's not a it's an original. Woods. Whispering Woods here. Yeah. Okay, but either way, it's not like an original name by any means. No. I'm sure it's all over the freaking world. So I thought that was like, eh, okay. Maybe. But if you're not making any specific references to Scientology, this is just people pulling on like a little bit of something. Yeah, trying to pick things apart. There were also some weird items and some weird records that were found. But I didn't think that any of them really conclusively pointed to this being a hoax. One of them was hair dye, which the witnesses had already explained that she dyed her hair earlier that week. They're like, oh, we found a box of hair dye. This proves that she dyed her hair to make it look like it. Like, uh, They claimed that Petra had dyed her hair to look like Amy, which didn't make any sense because Petra was at Whispering Winds. Amy was in McKay. So, like, why? Right. What good would it do? Yeah. It's not like they sent Petra to McKay to act like Amy. I, it just didn't make any sense. And then they also found a couple of uh, floodlights and some uh, electrical wiring that had been burned up in an incinerator on, the pro- on like, the winery property. But I also thought this was pretty lame because it's a big property that's under construction. And if you're out in the middle of nowhere, if you go out here, just out go, out, go out to Waterford, people don't throw things in the trash. They have burn barrels. But floodlights and electrical lines? They'll burn anything out there. They burn everything. Okay, but why? If it was busted, which you can't if it's tell. it's new property, though. Like... It's not. It's, a, it's under construction. That doesn't mean their equipment is new, though. They had mm-hmm. owned several other properties, so it could have been old equipment. I really don't know. And then they also said that there was evidence of... There was a phone call from a motel or a hotel that was located between... Gundaya and McKay, but they didn't say when the phone call came from. Like, you can't call that evidence because you can't show that anybody was traveling. That phone call could have been from two weeks ago. We don't know. So what if they traveled? They're they're building a new business. Maybe they ran out for something. Mm -hmm. So I didn't think that that was solid evidence either, personally. So I don't know. Is it real? Is it hoax? They're gone? We really, we don't know. Maybe they're here. So that was the Gundaya McKay abduction mystery. Thank you for sharing that with us, all right? You're welcome. I think it's time for a bathroom break. Okay. It's hard as balls. It's hard as balls. It's hard as balls. <coughs> Sexy. It's hard as balls. Trying to get real bassy there, but it just wasn't working. No. I need to smoke a few more packs a day. I spilled beer on my pants. What did you do that for? I don't know. So I have a story for you. You have a story for me? I do. Believe it or not. <laughs> and it's an abduction story. Get that you one. You don't say. Yeah. So I have a little bit of a background, kind of, I guess you could say. You did background. Well, I I don't know if you consider it background or not. Anyways, let me jump into it. So as I'm sure you and a lot of people know, a lot of abduction stories are often 
accredited to kind of just a kooky person. You know, yeah. often with like some sort of something going on in their brain where people are just like, wow, this dude's just crazy, right? Right. And most are often just swept under the rug as some claims seem to be too made up and out of this world. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Did you think of that all I yourself? I did. No, I You're did. I typed this whole thing on myself. <laughs> such a dork. Thank you. Uh, nerd. How I did I already it. know you were going to say that as I was typing this? <laughs> you were thinking it as you typed it up. I guarantee it. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I was really hoping that my Midnight Society joke would land, but... Fuck you, man. You know these things about me. I don't... I get your jokes. Why don't you get mine? You should get working on that, I think that tells you that, something man. about yourself. All right. That I'm way fucking so some... cooler than you. Yeah, okay, whatever. For sure. Some of the most credible UFO abductions started to surface in the late 1960s and early 70s, at least in the Americas. With Barney and Betty, right? One of them. Yeah, so one of the first widely publicized and accepted stories um, came from a Nebraska policeman, Herbert Shermer. Shermer? Shermer. Herbert Shermer. Herbert Shermer. Who claimed... That just sounds like a joke name. Right. Herbert Shermer. Shermer. Even just Shermer. It doesn't matter what you throw in front of it. Shermer. Sounds like ice cream. Sherbert. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Or like an ice cream delivery service. Do you think they make... Herbert Sherbert? Do they make Herbert flavored Sherbert? They should. Did that would also be a little have creepy. Herbert flavored Sherbert? Oh, kinky. Extra creamy. Wow. Oh. <laughs> so Herbert Sherbert claimed that he had seen a UFO and experienced time loss. And this happened one early December night in 1967. Under hypnosis, Sherbert recounted being taken on a craft and speaking with the aliens. And they were telling him they were harvesting electricity from power lines. Why the fuck would they need to harvest electricity from power lines if these things can travel across the fucking universe? I don't know. Free energy, motherfucker? It just seems weird. Another one was a Brazilian farmer, Antonio Velas Boas. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, who was abducted and seduced. This was kind of just funny. And also, I would not be mad if this happened to me. Abducted and seduced in 1957 by what he described as a sexy blonde, blue-eyed space girl with high cheekbones and red pubic hair. (laughs) Oh my god, this is just like some guy coming up with an excuse for why he cheated on his wife. You think so? (laughs) Maybe. He's like, I didn't have a choice. She's from out, you know, an alien. That makes me think of uh, Battlestar Galactica, where they're, what are they, they're not, they're like cyborgs. I can't remember what they're, Cylons, that's what they're called. The Cylons look like people from Earth. Yeah. Makes me, you don't get that reference either. But it makes me think of like a Cylon, like aliens made Cylons. (laughs) So it looks human, but it's this ultra, yeah. To get a sperm specimen. Yep. Yep. But it's basically just a sex doll. Would you be mad? Yes. Well, nerd. Researchers can directly date the abduction by alien phenomenon to the late 1920s, while family studies suggest it began in the 1890s. A Temple University historian, David M. Jacobs, says that the aliens began their breeding program at the turn of the century. 
Wait, wait, back that up. A Temple University what, what? Historian. Historian. A Temple University historian says that the aliens began their breeding program. Right. So through his research into the into the accounts. Okay. I'm just I'm making sure I'm hearing you right. Jacobs, through his research of abduction stories and his own interviews with abductees, found that the bulk of abductions be- seems to begun in the mid-20th century, possibly to be attributed to the first UFO mass sighting of the 1940s hmm. in Roswell. So when one had crashed in, into something. and I think that was Roswell? A hoax, Everybody though. knows Roswell. It was a hoax, though, wasn't it? It was no. just like a weather balloon. No, that's what the government said, and everybody's screaming that this is not, this is clearly not a weather balloon. It was, n- no, it was a government cover-up. It was a widely known government cover-up. No. Two of the earliest reports come from 1880, one from Venezuela and one from New Mexico. In Venezuela, it was a 14-year-old boy in eastern Venezuela, who had seen a luminous ball coming closer to the ground before coming to a hover near him. He felt drawn to the ball, but he was successful in leaving this shiny little thing alone. And that's the same thing from the guy in New Mexico, right? Or Arizona, or whatever it was. No. New Mexico, the evening of March 26, 1880, near Galisto Junction, Four men heard voices coming from a strange balloon flying over their heads. They claimed it to be the shaped like a fish and appeared to be driven by a fan device. Eight to ten figures on board were speaking an unknown language, and the craft continued to fly low over Galisto Junction and then rose rapidly toward the east. Okay, so maybe that was a the Hindenburg. A maybe it was an early German Hindenburg. Maybe prototype. Speaking a language they don't understand. It's if it's driven by a fan, that doesn't sound like it's really. In eighteen eighty. <clears throat> yeah. What does Germany care about the United States in eighteen eighty? Germany's always cared about other countries. Well, why would they fly their blimp all the way over here? I'm just saying it sounds like a blimp Hindenburg type thing. The dirigibles. Did you redo? No, that was my story. The dirigible is your twisted. story. So my story is of Thomas Reed and his family, mostly told through Thomas Reed. He seems to be the most famous one out of this, or at least the one who's most outspoken about it, I guess. Everything began in 1966, where the sort of cut-up accounts of a six-year-old Thomas Reed claims he was first contacted by extraterrestrials in his bedroom on his family's farm in Berkshires of Massachusetts. Emmett stole baby Rocky from me. <laughs> That's funny. Poor little baby Rocky's all slimy now. Sit here, baby Rocky. I will keep you safe along with Carpetato. Maybe they could be friends. Yeah, go over there. Go hang out with Carpetato. We should get googly eyes. Put it on Carpetato <laughs> and then give it to Dean. Yes. He's like, oh my god, this is so cute. That would be hysterical. He'd probably cry when it rots. Oh, that would be gross. It went from cute to nasty really fast. <laughs> Okay, I also want to say that this took quite a bit of digging because there is a website called, um, it's either Tom, T-H-O-M, read.info or thomasread.info that a bunch of sites directed you to, like they were citing this site, 
And apparently, well, it seemed like it was his accounts directly. Like Mm -hmm. he had this whole memoir of what happened. (sighs) But when I would try to go to it, it would always say, like, you don't have the permissions to view this site. Hmm. So I don't know. So it was kind of hard. I found a few videos of him talking directly about some of them. Um, and others, I, it was just, I pulled a lot of it together from some different websites. Okay. So this was the first sighting. This was 1966 when he was six years old. And he says that there were lights, then figures in the hallway. All of a sudden, Reed was in the woods surrounding his home looking at a UFO. Next, he appeared inside the craft with his younger brother, Matthew. The being showed him a protection, a projection of a willow tree. And that's really all I could find about this first one. It just shows him a projection of a willow tree? Yeah. That's unusual. Yeah. So I'm sure there's a lot more going on with it, but again, this is, that's all I could really find about this first one. So after this, um, they had moved. They The mother boarded up the windows and... Close. So she took it seriously. Right. Boarded up the windows to the to the house, the bedroom, uh, and they just up and left. A year later, in 1967, there was a follow-up incident at a different home in Sheffield, Massachusetts. They said it was just up the street from their old home, so I don't know if they lived like right on the border of the city line or if it was a little more than just up the street, mm-hmm. but it was definitely in Sheffield. So, again, Reed had witnessed strange lights. The doors began slamming, and then they appeared back inside the vessel. So, I found a video on YouTube where he was talking um, directly about this incident taken from, or he was also speaking on what his brother had experienced. And he said that, he said that what he experienced and what his brother experienced was different, a bit different. So, Matthew had recalled that, okay, let me back it up. So, in their bedroom at this home, they had shared a bunk bed. Matthew, his brother, had heard a small attic door in their room rattling, thinking it was Thomas trying to just scare him. So, he's up on the top bunk talking to Thomas, but at this point, Thomas says he was already taken by the aliens. So Matthew notices that Thomas isn't there, so he runs to his mom's room trying to wake her up, but he gets no response from her. Like screaming, you know, shoving her, you know, Thomas is gone, Thomas is gone, she doesn't wake up. I don't like this. So then he runs to his grandmother's room, where they, she was staying with the family, trying to wake her up, but again gains no response. What um, the hell? And this is when he kind of starts hearing some unfavorable noises, right? Unfavorable? Yeah. To like a six or seven year old? Yeah. Unfavorable noises. Okay. Do you not understand what I mean by that? I mean, that could be a... Noises that creep you the fuck out. Okay. Unfavorable. So next he sees... He's okay. So he's in his grandma's room at this point. Next he sees two figures around five foot tall with an egg-shaped head and golden body appear at the top of the stairs. So they then rose at the side of her bed and what he described as they were scanning the room, never really directly looking at him, although he felt like they were, but it seemed like they were just observing the room more or less. 
just taking everything in. And suddenly they just leave the room. So after they left, he finally gets uh, their mother awake. And as they're searching the house, there's a loud bang. And then suddenly Matthew disappears. So pretty much at this same point in time on the craft, Thomas says that he was worried that Matthew wasn't there with him. And he describes the attempt at communication between these extraterrestrials and himself as a projection of images. So he was like, you know, often you think about communication between these extraterrestrials, either like, you know, they speak your language or they're speaking something completely different or um, it's like telepathic. But he said that they were popping up images kind of in his brain. So that kind of goes back to that Mm -hmm. projection of a willow tree for whatever reason that was. But that's how he described the communication between them. So he was upset that his brother wasn't there. And so he wasn't cooperating with the beings, which Thomas believed was frustrating them and halting anything that they had wanted to do with him on board the ship. So afterwards, they had gathered, after talking from everything, Matthew and Thomas gathered that the reason that Matt was taken all of a sudden was to get him to cooperate. I don't like, I don't like this story. This would be like if our boys went missing. Yeah. I don't like it. It happens to everybody, right? Apparently. The next thing they know, he and his brother are in the driveway being picked up by their mother, who had been frantically searching for them on horseback. In 1967? Yeah, they lived on a farm. Oh, okay. I mean, okay. You got a big property. You're not driving your car around. Yeah. You know. People still ride horseback. Your yeah, but son usually being one of them. When you think, I know that he rides horseback, but still, when you think as a, if you're going out searching for somebody, you, the first thought is you hop in a car and you go for a search. Well, she's not driving around the block. That wouldn't be my first thing, right? Like the kid is with you all of a sudden, and then he just disappears. Yeah, right. What would you do in that situation? Like, how do you even go search your own property? The kid literally just vanishes in front of your eyes. Yeah. What do you do in that situation? Right. So their mother and grandmother had said that they were acting strangely and they would kind of be jumpy when they would go to console them or touch them or anything. These first two incidents made life hell for the family. Their mother had owned a local restaurant and locals would come in just to harass her and make fun of her for being a lunatic. I mean, it's horrible, but I guess it's understandable too. People don't, they don't experience it. They don't believe it. Yeah. As long as I, as much as I don't understand why, you know, that behavior would be brought on somebody else. I can understand why, especially in 1967, why people would behave like that to somebody else. Two years after the incident at their Sheffield home. So this is in 1969. The family was traveling home on route seven when they all saw strange lights in the sky above their car. They experienced what Reed describes as a change in pressure or an electromagnetic field. Then a dead silence fell. The light grew brighter. The car stalls out of nowhere. Thomas, his brother, his mother Nancy, and grandmother Marion next appeared in a giant room, something similar to what they described as uh, an airplane hangar. So all four of them were abducted at once. All four of them. Thomas was walked down a hallway by something that shared human characteristics. He described it as looking male with a weak chin and had no hair. It was wearing a white jumpsuit and eyewear. 
and he was taken to meet two ant-like figures. And the next thing he remembers is that he appeared in a cage. Huh. Oh. Yeah. They'd been, like, chill with him this whole time, kind of communicating and whatever, and now they're going to stick him in a cage? Yeah. Well, that fucking escalated. All of the family members um, had remembered being inside this large structure, but each of them, of course, were calling different fragments from the encounter. I couldn't really find too much else into whatever they had accounted. I'm sure it's on that website that I can't Mm -hmm. get access to, but... There wasn't, it seemed like everything that was widely available was through the accounts of Thomas. Do you think that website can read minds and it's like, you're not a true believer, you cannot access? But I am a true believer. In UFOs and abductions? Yeah. UFOs, for sure. Abductions, maybe not so much. I think there's a bunch of ridiculousness out there, but yeah, I also definitely think that it has happened. I believe in UFOs and I believe that... I believe there's been contact. I believe we've been visited by something. I don't know that it's necessary necessarily extraterrestrials. There's the belief that there are actually beings that live underneath the water that we can't see, or like, is it time travelers or whatever? But I don't know that something can travel across space yet. We can dream it, but I don't know that we can make it. I do. You do? We've already developed, maybe not... Um. We aren't experts at ion propulsion, but that's one of, if not the most, at least right now, efficient means of interstellar transport. Well, I guess you can get going. It's it's a constant acceleration. What's what's to say that another civilization couldn't have figured it out a thousand years ago, and they've already right. And I I guess if you think about the age of the universe is fourteen billion years. Right. The age of the Earth is only four billion. So. The universe is vastly older than than our own home, but we use ourselves as like this measurement, this marking point. Like it has to be oxygen, it has to have carbon. It can't do this because we can't do that. Well, that's but because that's, of what basic physics and chemistry tells us. Right. That's what we. That's what we know based on what we understand here. I think for a valid reason, though. I I agree. Because every other laws of physics and... Quantum mechanics breaks the laws of physics all the time. The laws of classic physics and the laws of quantum mechanics are two different things. They work hand in hand often. They do and they don't. Things break down when you get to the quantum world. And that's kind of where possibly the the ability to create that kind of time that travel across space would come from. It's probably quantum mechanics. Yeah. So for if there's been a civilization out there that's existed longer than we have. I've already figured that shit out. Mm-hmm. And really, humankind has only been around for 200,000 years. So we're just a blink in the existence of the universe. So I guess it makes sense that there could be other beings that have had the time to perfect that kind of technology where we haven't. That's what I think is the case. Anyways. Sorry. Tangents. Before you get into this fucking science bullshit. Shut up. <sighs> okay, so next. What's next? Hours later, they all come to near the car they had stalled out in. Near the car? Near the car. Not, Not in the car, in the near car. the car. Hmm. So this was the incidents that changed it all for the Reed family. 
There were dozens of locals who had witnessed an unknown craft and reported it to police and sheriffs in Sheffield, as well as Great Barrington, which is a town about six miles north. Wow, really? Okay, so it wasn't... Like, there were witnesses this time to what they've right. been saying all these years. Right. They didn't, of course, see these people get abducted, but they right. saw something flying in the sky that they didn't know what the fuck it was. That's interesting. The local radio station was also bombarded with calls about the craft in the sky. It was generally described as a dish-shaped vehicle doing acrobatic maneuvers in the sky. And at this point, people were coming back to the family restaurant apologizing profusely for their actions and saying that they had seen something too. So they're adding some validity to what these people for so long, or at least for the past you know, three years or so, were shunned for. That had to feel like such a relief. Right. Like you're going through this by yourself and everybody thinks you're crazy and treating you like crap. And finally, there's some evidence that you've been, what you've been saying is true. For sure. Right. So... The off-world incident, and they refused to call their experience as abductions and hate how media has turned it into such. I found this a lot in a lot of the news articles where these reporters were interviewing um, the family, mostly Thomas again, where he refuses to call it an abduction because he doesn't believe it as such. He believes it as like an encounter. And, And everything that I found, anything like official, they always call it off-world or otherworldly. That's weird. I mean, you're taken against your will. That's an abduction. See, but it never, as long as they described it, never seemed to be something where they were upset about it. Uh, Your kid gets vanished from in front of your eyes and you're out searching frantically. Yeah, they're upset about it. He's in a room by himself wondering where his brother is. He's upset about it. No, okay. Well, Thomas described that as he said the first time they got abducted, this was in his recollection of the second time that he got abducted when he couldn't find his brother. said in the first time he was willing to do the things that they asked. Like he didn't feel threatened. He didn't feel like he was, they were pushing him to do anything that he wouldn't feel comfortable doing. Mm-hmm. So that's, I'm sure, why he doesn't describe it as an abduction. Agree to disagree. Okay. Are you Thomas? Don't think so. Well, I'm just saying, Thomas, I don't like your definition. If you're listening, I don't like it. Have you been otherworlded? No, thank goodness. Not something I ever wish to experience. So this incident is um, the first case in the United States to be declared as a true event by historians. The Great Barrington Historical Society and Museum says that they confirm that the Reed off-world incident is historically significant and true and warrants induction into the GBHS collection. Huh. So they were saying that something that has to be um, historically significant has to cause... um, Oh, no, I can't remember how they described it. Like stir, I guess, in the community, whether it be negative or positive, which it has. Mm -hmm. Because still to this day, there are locals that talk about it. The decision by the society was made, including some factors. Reed had passed a polygraph test taken in 2010, passing with 99.1%. Although, I mean, we all know that polygraphs aren't really... It's not science. Yeah. Because if you tell yourself to believe something, then you pass a polygraph, right? Mm-hmm. If you teach yourself to believe it, whatever. It's just measuring like electrical current and 
heart rate and stuff. Right. Which is a good, I mean, it's a good indicator. But again, if you, if you teach yourself that that's the truth, then you will pass a polygraph test. I would fail every polygraph test I ever take, even if I am telling the truth, because I, I'm so nervous around authority. If I were sat down on one of those things, I guarantee you I would fail so hard. I don't think so, because it takes other things into consideration. So there was also physical evidence gathered by Detective Stephen White, who was the lead investigator of the family's encounters, and he confirmed the president. Pre, he confirmed the presence of magnetic fields and and radioactive readings associated with the Reed incidents. Ooh, that's weird. That's kind of cool. Yeah. And this, I think, it was like a six to three vote on this through the board, the GBHS board. And the three members who voted against it really voted against it. But then, of course, so the decision was made. And they're also, I believe, in the Roswell Museum. I forget the name of the foundation or whatever, but I believe they're also there. Hmm. And there was also a monument that was erected in their, not in their honor because they're still alive, but in remembrance to the happenings. But... A lot of the locals didn't like it. Like within the first few nights, it had gotten vandalized and everything, and then eventually well, taken shitty. down, hauled away. But yeah, <laughs> think about you get a monument erected, and you're like, "Go check out my monument." You better get there fast. Right. So that's my story, and I thought it was pretty cool because that was, is cool. It was one of the you know by people who run a museum and a historical society thought that this was valid enough there was enough thought and time and energy put into validating these accounts that they thought it was you know good enough to be considered legit i thought i thought that was a really interesting story i'd never heard that one before yeah that's wild three times imagine that the whole family at one point right i cannot imagine as a mother what that would feel like to have your child just go missing like that right in front of your face. Yeah. I would flip shit. I don't know if he directly vanished. I think they were all looking for him separately. But then there was just a loud bang and boom, Matthew was gone. Didn't really say. That's not really uh, inconspicuous, though, a loud bang. Do they care about being inconspicuous? Like, you're not going to find Apparently not them. in that situation. I guess when you hear about other ones, it's like super subtle. Yeah. The only reason they knew about Amy was because Petra walked in on it. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. it would have just been Amy's missing. For sure. How did Amy pop up in McKay? Yeah. Right? Well, Which thank you for sharing your story. story. That would have been interesting. I wonder if Keith tried to twist it that way at all. Manipulative bastard. Right. So well, that is our that. abduction stories or other world off-world stories, as Thomas likes to put it. I'll have to remember that one. Off-world. Yeah. It's an interesting way to think of it. But I guess if you're up in a plane, are you off-world? I guess it... Uh, According to that definition? You know, the eye, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing. Just a reminder to go check out PFLAG. Go show some support, go donate, go check out the advocacy page especially. And if you can, check out their uh, their social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that good stuff. PFLAG, it's 
pflag.org. That's the website. Rate and review our bitch asses on iTunes. That really helps out a lot. Please do that if you listen on iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends. Whatever you're listening on, subscribe, hit download, and tell your friends. Telling other people about it, getting other people to listen is a huge help. We've definitely seen our audience grow recently, which is exciting. Even if you don't like us, subscribe. Yep. So you can hit us up at our email with like episode ideas, if you just want to chat, if you have stories that you want to share, let us know. So thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We love you. We love you. We love you. Oh, my God. Big hearts. Betches. That's how you want to end it. We love you, betches. We love you, betches. Thank you. So shall we raise a toast? toast? To, to our, our ghosts. ghosts.